This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, please poem. When Joanna Novak was a young teen, she developed a serious eating disorder. But after many years and a lot of hard work, she mostly had it under control. Then she got pregnant. Something about those hormones and her changing body plunged her right back into the old darkness, where she had to fight off the urge to starve herself and even kill herself. The only thing that kept her feeling tethered to reality was writing. And so she wrote. For a while, she even wrote a poem a day. And then she went to Taos for a few weeks in the summer, indulging her obsession with the abstract expressionist painter Agnes Martin, and in a little over two weeks, she wrote a whole first draft of her memoir about Martin and about her pregnancy. But the memoir, titled Contradiction Days, won't come out until 2023, so we didn't focus on that. What is out in the world right now is her poetry collection, titled New Life. Speaking of new life... Three months after she came back from Taos, she had a baby, a boy, who's three now. And he actually inspired my first question. So how, okay, so with a toddler in your household, how do you fit writing into your days? Um, that's a really good question. I like think the first thing is that with a lot of help, you know, we have a, a babysitter who comes every day to help out with childcare. My husband is a really incredible father and is really very involved in everything in my son's life. And from the time my son was born, my husband was wearing him in a baby wrap for hours a day, you know, so like the first couple hours of the day I could be writing and my husband might be up holding our son, sleeping on his chest. But I find that I can't be as precious about my routines anymore. Like before my son was born, it was really easy to be like, I get up at 4.30 every day or five every day and I write for two and a half hours. But with a kid, I just feel like I go to bed very tired. And like when I start sleeping, I just want to sleep and get rest. And that feels like important to being a good parent. So that's sort of like an unsexy answer is like, I just find that I have to be less precious about the time when I write and also by <laughs> ignoring like lots of real responsibilities for like, work work because I don't just live with you know I'm not economically sustained by my writing I have yeah. work outside of writing so you know uh, what do people call it like quiet quitting sometimes yes 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 yeah, yeah no that makes a lot of sense and you know the other thing that I wanted to know about that because you write in your memoir, you write about perfection and your relationship to perfection, which has been with you, it seems like your entire life. And well, when you have a child, <laughs> I think that's kind of common knowledge. You have to like let that go. Mm -hmm. uh, so how has that been for you in your writing? I think that's, re that's a really interesting question. Um, in some ways, I think that letting go of perfection in my writing means writing complete 
messy first drafts more often. I think the work that I've been sort of happiest with in the three years that I've been, you know, parenting is work that I've gotten out in like a very compressed period of time, an essay in a day, a story in a few hours, like at the end of the day in my notebook. And sometimes like editing has felt really right in that way as well. Just having kind of like super laser focused editing sessions rather than like I'll work on it for a few days for a couple hours a day. It's like, maybe I'll stay up for eight hours and kind of not blink, you know, and be like really in a piece because I think like my (laughs) dream of like a writing life once was the sort of Jeffrey Eugenides model, which as far as I know is like, he says he goes to an office and writes every day for eight hours. And he, if he writes nothing or a bunch, it's still a good day. And I love that ideal. And it just doesn't work for me anymore because, you know, I work from home and my son is in the next room. And like, if I come out of my office and he says, want to go come down and sit on the carpet with him and like read a story in the middle of the day, like that's really important to me to sit down and read a story with him in the middle of the day. Or if he wants to come into my office and like run his trains along the edge of the printer, (laughs) I'm not going to stop him from doing that. It's just like so lovely, sometimes much more lovely than what I'm working on. And so I really like embrace and accept those kinds of deviations from, again, this sort of like ideal that I once had in my mind. And, you know, I don't know what it'll be like when he's older or in school, but for now, he's just like a kind of joyful, he's kind of like a joyful sprite in our house. And so like, I I welcome him and his disruptions and like the chaos, which is all really, you know, lovely, not to sound too cheesy about it. I mean, it's so interesting to hear you talk in this way, because both your poetry collection, New Life, I mean, your latest poetry collection as your upcoming memoir, Contradiction Days, they're written in anticipation of your son's birth. And they're written with a lot of trepidation, Mm -hmm. you know, the ways in which it will interfere with your art making, your writing. And yeah, a lot of ambiguity, you know, like, of course, you're happy. And also, you're filled with dread. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what it's like from the vantage point where you are now to read those pages again. Editing Contradiction Days was really difficult in that regard because each each revision after it was acquired was a total rewrite. And I have to say that by the time I got to the last one, which I think was by far the most substantive, and, and that's the draft, you know, that's really close to the draft you read, like I was I was putting off that revision for months because I felt so distant from that fear and trepidation because I was so wrong in some ways in my fears. And it was really hard to encounter like my former self in those pages and see all the ways that she was um all the ways that she was like so limited in her conception of like 
like love and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in a kind of generative sense. I really didn't kind of, you know, have any idea that like it could be positive having like a baby, that it would be like pretty much fine. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, like the original draft of the book, it was sort of all over the place temporally. And it it just ended like as I was leaving Taos. So there was no kind of like perspective. And also like in the first draft, I still hadn't had my son, (laughs) you know, like I left and there was a whole trimester ahead of me and um, a C-section and all that good stuff. So I'm really happy with the epilogue and the, the tone that it strikes there. Yeah, it was lovely to read. Um, speaking of C-section, I was wondering if we can get to a poem from New Life. It's the one called, let me see, where did it go? Uh, what am I doing here tonight? It's on page 38. Okay. And can you set the poem a little bit? You know, like, where is it set? Um, like, what is the context for this poem? Sure. So this poem is set in conference room eight at Cedar Sinai, where I took a breastfeeding class with my husband. And I was breastfeeding. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay. There was a very bizarre, I mean, it, the, it really could have been like an interesting personal essay as well, because there was this very, like, kind of, the instructor was a character in the way of somebody who's worked on both sets in Hollywood and also has been moonlighting as a a lactation consultant at Cedar sinai for, like, decades of her life. She was just so (laughs) antic and, like, capering around the room and had just a a, like energy that was so different than the energy that like I felt I felt so insecure and nervous and like I really hadn't been doing anything with any other pregnant women when I was pregnant I mean I didn't tell anyone in like a workplace environment that I was pregnant I just was kind of like trying to be as low-key about it as possible you know And so like being around people who seemed like really excited about like the process, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I ended up having kind of like a really bad depressive episode actually, like at the class. I kind of remember now like freaking out in a hospital bathroom, which is not uncommon for me. Yeah. So anyhow, this poem is set at a lactation class and, you know, scans the room of participants, which was like pregnant women, often their partners, and then sometimes like mothers, sisters, friends. So that's this poem. Um, that's great. That's and, great. Um, and I'm actually just kind of like, as I'm looking at this poem again, I'm realizing like the collection is actually like the art at Cedar sinai that like my husband and I were like, wow, they have a lot of art. Okay. What am I doing here tonight? Cruises retain pregnant women and partners in conference roommate, enticements, education, pavilion level. Quite a collection, says my husband, but who's looking at art? The moms in long dress, lustrous hair. The elegance of this place, dull lighting. On the table, in front of the room, 
plush placenta, stingray flat, baby doll and bendy pelvis, poster of parturient cross-section, show and tell me, what am I doing here tonight? What new lie do I buy? All the fun fears, name tag, snack, water to sozzle some joy. Mom number one is excited about everything, absolutely everything. Number two, the whole thing. Dad number two, diapers and wedding veils, another man, home life, cooking, playing records, books. Me, oh, I alphabetize pain, passenger, patient, power, psyche in a split second. Meet the five Ps, says the nurse. It may seem overwhelming. It is overwhelming. The first of many decisions. What box do I check for unbirth? Your belly will be swabbed with orange, but then it's over in minutes. The skin is cut, the uterus, baby is out in five. Sutures, uterus, skin, 20. Clamps to prevent calf clots. Pale yellow paint to sun you the OR. The catheter, fairy floss thin. A shot in the back and IV to swim. Have Mumsy go under? Oh no, 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 never. Why not? Let me go. Mom number one believes the surgery will protect baby's brain. Another likes control. Zero risk of tearing. One and done. Pain is second. Bed rest versus ice packs. Scars versus snips, vacuum not forceps, emptiness, not gush. The dread or the dread or the trope. No, the dread. I can't go on here, boy. Thank you. Um, I really like the polyphony in this poem. I mean, it's obvious, of course, when you write, you know, mom number one is excited about everything. And then you kind of voice what she says. <laughs> There's the speaker of the poem, of course. Um, me, oh, I alphabetize pain, passenger, patience, power, psyche in a split second. And then cuts in, you know, the nurse. Meet the five Ps, says the nurse. It may seem overwhelming. It is overwhelming, you know, on and on. But there are also things where it's like a little less obvious, I think, when you're listening to it. There are these parentheses. So, you know, we're speaking about anesthesia during the c-section i guess right i think it was lactation for c-section okay okay yeah yeah so there's that line have mumsy go under oh no 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 never in mm -hmm. that kind of infantilizing a beat tone that apparently people take on when talking to mothers to be who knows mm -hmm. why and then in parenthesis you write like have mumsy go under oh no no never why not let me go mm. um as a writer i'm so interested in how did the language surrounding motherhood and education around that how did that language strike you and what kind of response did that provoke in you well first i think that like whenever i'm in a kind of like medical institutional setting i just like can't help feeling like Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath are just sort of like skipping around in my brain and kind of creating this like sort of haughty, um, pissy register. Um, like, yeah, it's just a product of having read them both when I was very young and in, in like a lot of mental health care situations and, and, and really having internalized their poetic voices. So 
there's that. But, you know, the, the kind of rhetoric used to address pregnant women is infantilizing. I don't think it's like necessarily like a sinister infantilizing, but I think it's kind of like trying to make this really overwhelming process digestible, like something like a you know mnemonic like the five P's or whatever. And in some ways, the kind of like perky and like kindergarten language that gets associated with pregnancy really made me feel very possessive of my own what felt like a really different experience of that time it sort of like made me burrow into my own like subjectivity and because I probably felt like sort of so insecure in my ambivalence and you know body changes identity changes etc I think that sort of led me to feel really like kind of angry at people who felt like happy and just sort of like, like it was just an easy thing to accept and feel good about, you know, like an easy thing to be happy about. And certainly like in this situation, like in this conference room where there are like snacks laid out and people were just like getting up and getting water and like bags of muffins, like it was like just no big deal. I'm like, how are you not freaking out about that right now? And like, I don't want to be demeaning to other people and other people's experience of pregnancy, like at all. Yeah, 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 of course. But I don't I don't hear that if that's reassuring at all. Like, I don't hear that you're dissing them. I, yeah. I just hear that, well, your experience is different from what those women are going through. Yeah. But there is no place for your experience in that kind of context. Yeah. Is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, also, though, like, I think I'm always sort of like in fiction writer mode, even if I'm writing poetry, even if I'm writing nonfiction. And like something that's helpful to me in getting outside of the like limitedness of my own feeling. And in this case, like what I remember as a very emotional reaction to attending this class is like looking around, like those kinds of like details and like concrete objects like really like anchor me in the world and so there's like all this data from the experience that like really matters to me like the props of the name tag and the water and the snacks and like the hair and the the stuffed baby doll and like this pelvis that people had to wear and I think there really was like a plush placenta and <laughs> like a stuffed placenta that this like really um, funny nurse <laughs> held out and was kind of like bopping around the room like <laughs> so like I love those details and like one of my sort of like guiding principles or as a writer is Nabokov's idea of caressing the divine detail you know and I think like in the face of a lot of um, you know like turmoil or turbulence or ambivalence or confusion like the divine detail is there for me so the word islands comes up 
again and again and again throughout your collection, New Life. And so I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about, yeah, that word and the fact that the image of an island was so much on your mind during the writing of this book, which is during your pregnancy. Yeah, so it is just that, like, for, actually, for, like, all three books of poetry and then, like, even the fourth that I have that's coming out in a couple of years, I always think of a kind of, like, place. So, like, in New Armenia, there's this sort of, like, bleak French countryside, death march, um... And with a bay in North America, like it's that book is of the California desert. And and so like New Life is very much this kind of like generalized islandscape. And the first poem in this that I wrote in this book is actually the title poem, New Life, which I wrote after watching this movie, Castaway, not the story of Tom Hanks and the Volleyball Wilson, (laughs) but this story about, if I get it correctly, an Englishman who like puts an ad in the personal section and asks for like a companion to go live with him on a remote island and like forge a like island existence for I don't remember three months or six months and it's a true story. And then it was like made into a movie in the eighties. And I, I remember watching this movie where this kind of young woman accompanies this eccentric man to some place off the coast of New Zealand. I don't remember now, but like there aren't really towns or like infrastructure on this Island. They're just going to go and like set up camp and it's not, going to be good (laughs) and there's something about watching that movie when I was pregnant that made me like really it really hit for me this kind of feeling of like being sent away to this place where I had to like figure out how to like redo everything you know like the most basic things like getting water suddenly becomes different or washing yourself becomes different and I really like this is a little over dramatic. Like I really had a very simple pregnancy outside of like the mental health issues I experienced. I didn't have any complications, but it was such a a mental upheaval for me that it felt like I had been cast away to this other place. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah thinking about islands and the kind of like resorts and vacations and getaways and this kind of like romantic sentimental view of islands was like a really nice reprieve from some of what I was feeling in terms of being islanded emotionally. And I also just kind of wanted Like I wanted the book and the poems to feel a little bit like, what is the term for this? Like a domestic horror, like a psychological horror Mm -hmm, film mm -hmm. in that sort of like (laughs) Shutter Island way where you're like, what's going on here? Like what's real, what's not? And I mean, it's not, the book's not quite as dark as that, but I liked that idea of the book having a kind of landscape. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely at times exuberant 
And at times there's this dark edge to it, like almost nightmarish. So I think, yeah, you hit a lot of different notes in your collection. So I think that definitely uh, came through. Um, also, as you were talking about your pregnancy being in, in the physical sense, uncomplicated, but mentally not so, you choose how much or what you want to say. But what what did you struggle with the most? So... I found that during my first trimester, I experienced the worst depression of probably my adult life. The only depression that rivaled it came after going off antidepressants in high school, when there's kind of often that really intense plummet. But I hadn't had a period like that in almost 20 years. And I had this really yeah, just a furious depression that would hit me often and without warning and was exacerbated by the sense that I should be like in a state of unparalleled joy because I had been trying to get pregnant. Mm. And so it wasn't like an accident when suddenly I was grappling with, oh no, this was this wasn't in the cards. Like it was the hope. I so wanted to be happy. And that's sometimes the worst thing is when you really want to be happy and your mind or your brain chemistry just like will not allow it. And I think a big part of it looking back has to do with the kind of intense change in like physical activity that felt safe. Um, so I'm a runner and the first doctor I saw told me I shouldn't be running. And like many years later, a different doctor was like, no, you could have been running your whole pregnancy. Like you would have been fine. But I was really afraid that like, if I ran something would happen. And so I stopped running and running is really critical to me kind of keeping in balance, I suppose, I think. Um, I also just felt like really confused with how to handle food as a pregnant person. So like, yeah, I like have had an eating disorder since I was an adolescent. And by the time I got pregnant, I really felt like I was not necessarily at the point of saying like I'm in recovery because I've always felt really anxious or not quite like comfortable with that idea. But I, I really felt like I'm kind of like, it's not an issue. And then suddenly like I was pregnant and I was like, just really thrown off. Like, do I eat everything I want? It's not like I was suddenly ravenous or anything, but I just didn't know, like, am I supposed to get like super health conscious right now or like super relaxed right now? And like, how will I feel if I get super relaxed right now? Or if I get super health conscious right now, is that going to like trigger something? I just felt really like overwhelmed by the ways, <laughs> by the choices I had about like food and how they would affect my body. And suddenly not only my body, but the baby's body as well and the baby's development. And so I got really like, I started really missing like 
restrictive eating, which like hadn't really been a part of my life for years, but I was just like sort of romanticizing that time and that kind of like ability to deny myself because suddenly that seemed like the absolute wrong thing to do. And yeah, that compounded with the depression just made the first trimester really, really challenging. And I, and I think at, at the, the worst parts of those months, I was just experiencing really intrusive suicidal ideation and panic, anger, confusion, just like so intense. They were really like capsizing me. Um, and I do think that like a good amount of it was hormonal. I know that people typically have like kind of easier second trimesters in a lot of ways. And that was true for me in terms of mental health issues. And at the same time, I also had gotten to a place where things were so bad and so disruptive that I really started making a very concerted effort to do things that would like keep me in the best mental health state possible. And those things are like reading, writing, and doing whatever exercise my doctor said was okay as frequently as possible because it just made me feel like I'm still connected to my body for its own utility (laughs) and not just the purpose of like carrying the baby yeah no I think that makes a lot of sense I mean especially with any kind of mental health struggle whether it's addiction or depression or eating disorder when you're getting better yeah you establish healthy habits and so I can imagine that to have those habits kind of thrown upside down because all of a sudden you know like your body's changing so rapidly and your needs are changing and Yeah, and it's hard to know what you need and what you can do. I I can imagine that having those habits taken away from you would send you reeling. Yeah. Uh, um, There are a few poems that I was thinking we could read. Uh, I'm just trying to see, yeah, which one I think would follow nicely out of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I have the, I have abeyance here too. If like it makes sense to go there, but otherwise, maybe we're t- like maybe we're really in motherhood and not. Yeah, yeah. I think so. By the way, gorgeous title. I no, need to you. tell you that. No, thank <laughs> um, you. Yeah. Do you want to um, hear a funny story about that title? Yes, please. It's related to what we're talking about in a way. Um, so when I before I started writing that book, I was in this kind of like really agonized state about an emotional issue, like a kind of personal emotional issue in life. And I guess once again, I was feeling just like a lot of despair. And I actually was like too upset to drive home from work at that day. And like, I couldn't stop crying. I was listening to music. I was just like one of those times when you're in a car and you shouldn't be driving, you know? And yeah. so I'm like pulled over into the parking lot of Whole Foods in Santa Monica. And I didn't know what to do and I didn't know who to call. And like, I felt like I couldn't call any of my friends or my family or my husband. 
And so I called a suicide hotline. I've always called hotlines, like, because I just has always felt like a sort of safe place to me. I've called eating disorder hotlines and a suicide hotline. And anyhow, I, I, but I hadn't done it in years, probably like 15 years or 10 years or something. And I started talking to this really lovely, this really lovely person who identified himself as she won. And, you know, he was listening to me and just, you know, kind of there and, you know, after I cried myself out, he started kind of restating what I'd said. And then he said, you're in abeyance in this kind of like calm, really beautiful way. And then he talked about this idea of being in abeyance and being kind of suspended and be caught between two things or in, indec- in a place of indecision or a holding. And I like kind of fell in love with his voice at that moment and that word because it was just like a snap of cold water, but like not stinging at all. And just like actually really like it was this sudden loveliness of language in the throes of like a really <laughs> intense emotional experience. Yes. And it was like the title came to me like a day later. I was like, abeyance, abeyance, abeyance North America. Like because it's wow. just such a beautiful word and I had never heard it before. Oh, you hadn't either. Okay, no, I, I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> but in, and it's not a word that I think you would usually hear from somebody like on a crisis line. It's like a legal word and it's so much yeah. more beautiful than most legalese. Can you talk a little bit about what abeyance actually means? Yeah, so abeyance legally is like when something is without an owner or on, it's an unclaimed object. But more generally, the word means in a state of suspension. And I think there's just something about the why in the middle of that word that kind of like makes you really feel like that state of suspension is like a, a rocking kind of like hammocked place. There's just something about the word that makes you really feel like in this like, yeah, state of sway it is gorgeous and i love also like the kind of writerly grace that can come from no matter how dire the situation that like mm. a beautiful word can snap you out of it you know i, I mean, know it's, it's beautiful yeah yeah um, um do you want to read everything in fireworks it's on page 67 yeah i think i do um and again, if you want to say something about it, you can just launch into it if you like. But if you want to introduce it somehow, feel free. Yeah. Um, well, so when I was writing, well, like once I realized I'm writing a poem a day called New Life, because all of these were originally titled New Life, anything that stuck in my mind from the day that felt related to this idea of a new life in terms of motherhood, pregnancy, being a pregnant body felt like potential material. And and this poem really was written after I, I think I was at my parents' house and I went to Mariano's, which is the local grocery store. And there were big signs in the window for Mother's Day flowers for sale. So that's referenced explicitly in the poem. Everything in fireworks. The night before Mother's Day, a team of woozy tulips, two dozen for $20. Hours parked 
in the driveway, jigger of vertigo, jiff in the jug. I am jealous of you in the aisle, aleatory, some retail clock. Nothing happened in the grocery storm, a glow with nerves and nectar, cards, carbohydrates. Cast off this convalescence and cure my conscience. Paradise, so cumbersome and warming, everything overdosed, overdue. Moonlight, tussive and diamond. I've learned what I have to do is a sentence. What I get to do is a gift. Thank you. Yeah, I really love this poem. And, you know, I love throughout your collection, the pleasure that you take in language is so obvious. A woozy tulips, jigger of vertigo, jiff in the jug. Um, and then also like grocery storm, which I think is so f- funny. It, it, and I'm curious about, okay, because you write at the end, I've learned what I have to do is a sentence, which of course can be interpreted as two different things. What I get to do is a gift. And so I'm wondering, given that writing and language has throughout this process, you know, of you struggling with, be it mental health, be it the anticipation of motherhood, with writing and language kind of as an anchor, I'm wondering how you give that gift now to your son. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, like, it's a really, um, that's a gift of a question. Like, I, (laughs) I don't want to, like, come off as like a humble bragging mom (laughs) but my son and I have a lot of fun playing with language together I don't even know where to begin like well my son really likes spelling yield is his favorite thing the yield time is his favorite thing so he likes spelling y-i-e-l-d but he likes spelling a lot of things like his favorite word, for some reason, is quiet, which he <laughs> It's not an easy one to spell. <laughs> no, it's not. And he, for some reason, says quiet, quiet. And so, like, he really just, like, kind of likes thinking about spelling, which is very sweet to me for a three-year-old. Yes. Um, it's not, like, something that we engineered. It's just, like, <laughs> you know, walking around. Um he, you know, like seeing a sign and kind of like him getting interested in the letters on it. So that's like one thing. Um, I think the other thing is like, it's harder now because he's reading longer books, but for a while I had like, you know, a dozen board books memorized so that if he kind of got upset, like maybe during a diaper change, I'd be like, do you want to hear Madeline? And then he'd say, please Madeline. And I would just recite it. And now like he recites books himself and the other the other day he like woke up in the middle of the night it was like the night of halloween so maybe it was like a weird sleep or something after trick-or-treating but he woke up in the middle of the night at like it was like two in the morning and we happened to be traveling so he was in the same room as like me and my husband and my husband and i were both awake and we heard him say arthur writes a story by mark brown for Phyllis Wender. 
And, like, he just proceeded to, like, you know, from title to author to dedication, like, right on through. And my husband was like, he's telling himself a story and putting himself back to bed. And so, like, that's just kind of, like, one of the activities in our household is, like, reading a lot. And, like, he's very, he's got a really good memory for language and story. Like, I always just think it's delightful. I try to always think it's delightful, um, which kind of is it it Um, really is i mean it's not wholly surprising if you have two writers for parents but still (laughs) yeah he plays with cars and trains and things like that too but yeah he loves kind of like he loves language play and the other really funny thing is like the other month ago i had i got an issue of the, the latest issue of three penny review in the mail and I was like at the breakfast table with him, just kind of like, look at this picture, look at this picture. And there's a really, there's a short Charles Simich poem called Blackout in there, four lines. And I was like, do you want to hear a poem? And he said, please poem. So I read it to him. And then like immediately afterwards, he was like, poem, poem. And ever since then, he's been like asking, he'll just say randomly like poem. And and then I'll recite it. And then at this point, it's like a kind of, you know, poor man's version of the poem, (laughs) even though it was only like 12 words. I still know I'm getting parts of it wrong. But we get to the end, which is like a father on the floor searching for a black cat. And then my son says the end. So that's the only poem he'll hear. If I try to like read him anything else, he like is like, no, or we have like, you know, and like endless New Yorkers around. And like, yeah. I'm like, look at the New Yorker. Like, I'm trying to like get yep. into it. He's like, no New Yorker, but that's okay. Um, yeah. And so can I ask you to recite the poem as good as you can get it? And then we can get to the real one if you like. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Blackout. And now I'm in mom voice, but <laughs> Blackout by Charles Simich. Mother is knitting a sweater for you. No, wait, let me try again. Mother is knitting a sweater, sitting in the dark. Father is on all fours, searching for a black cat. The end. Do you want to check real quick to see if you got it wrong in ways or... I don't trust it to be... Ah, here it is. Okay. Mother is knitting for me, a sweater in the dark. Father is on all fours, searching for a black cat. I love it. I hope that your your new new collection, not you know, not the one that you've already written for twenty four twenty five, but the one after that, will at least be called "Please Poem." <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so sweet. It's, it's just, amazing. Yeah, and he yeah. he's kind of been like that sweet his whole childhood. I have a friend who was like, you know, you dealt with so much during your pregnancy. And it's like, there was the, like, this is the gift of it is like, you've had just like the easiest, sweetest baby. So I know I'm really, really, really happy for you. Sorry. I hope that wasn't too gushy. I, I love gushy. Come on. Okay, you good, good, do good. gushy, right?
Joanna Novak is the author of three poetry collections, New Life, Abeyance North America, and Noir Mania. She's also written a novel, I Must Have You, a short story collection, Meaningful Work, which won the 2020 Ronald Sucknick Innovative Fiction Contest, and essays published in, among others, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. Her memoir, Contradiction Days, An Artist on the Verge of Motherhood, will come out sometime in 2023. Joanna Novak is co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook publisher, Tammy. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>